You can be seated. Good morning, Maple Grove Covenant Church. Oh, come on. That was not very good. I said, good morning, Maple Grove Covenant Church. Hey, now we're cooking with some gas here. Uh, my name is Ryan. I thought if I'm going to preach, I need to bring a bat, a skull, and of course, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life book. Sound okay with you guys? All right, fair enough. Good deal. I'm going to put this up here, and I will use those, but I'm not going to tell you when. So you have to be surprised. Uh, greetings to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from Central Lutheran Church, which is where I'm a pastor. And uh, they let me kind of come over here and hang out with you guys. I was here last year. I don't know if all of you were here. I know you guys had like a, uh, a, like a family camp or something last summer or something going on where a lot of you were gone. So anyhow, it's good to be back. Craig's a good buddy of mine. Uh, we met a long time ago at Bethel, so he's a good dude. So I appreciate him inviting me to be with you guys. This morning, I want to tell you Three things that I wish my father had taught me as a young man. Fair enough? Okay. So uh, when I was eight years old, my mother, my sister, and my brother and I left my father for the final time. The abuse, the alcoholism, and just the general shenanigans had kind of become too much. And so at eight years old, we decided to leave him. I was eight years old anyway. We left him for the final time. My mom thought, gosh, if we don't leave him, then we may not survive this deal. So we left him and never looked back. Because of that, I grew up, as you can imagine, without a father, which had all kinds of uh, unintended consequences. It was not easy for me growing up. And so I missed, I would say, I missed a lot of things that you're normally taught from a father. And my mom did the best she could. She was an amazing woman. Uh, but there were things I just missed because of the divorce and the abuse and all that. And of course, with the absent father. And so I missed a lot. Now I have four kids, uh, which is quite an accomplishment if, if you know what kids are like. And, uh, and so I'm doing all I can to raise them in the right way, to try to show up, to love on them, and to teach them things that I never learned, which is hard. So I'm trying to pick up things as I go and then pass them on to them so they won't have the same kinds of blind spots I did growing up. You know what I'm talking about? So, um, and thank God I am learning things as I go. Last fall, in fact, in September, I went on what's called a men's rite of passage. And it is just as weird as it sounds. I went out to Colorado, up in the mountains, a sky-high ranch. And I was there for five days, and they kind of take you out into the wild and do all kinds of ritualistic things to teach you how to be a man. And it kind of, this movement came out of the 70s and 80s. There was a man called Richard Rohr. Anybody heard of Richard Rohr? Okay, a couple of you. Great. Well, Richard Rohr, back in the 70s, was studying culture and American culture and other cultures like tribal cultures. And he found that in our culture, we really have no such thing as initiation rites. Whereas every other culture in the world, these tribal, story-based cultures, they all have what you might call initiation rites for young boys. So what happens generally in these other cultures is they'll grab these young boys at 11, 12, 13 years old. They'll take them out into the wild, right, into the wild places, and they'll let them go for a few days or whatever. They're all different. Um, but when they do that, they want to teach them certain things about what it means to be a man. Then they bring, and it usually involves like scaring the, you know, scaring the little boy out of them, like making them terrified and all these kinds of things. And they bring the boy back, and when they bring him back into the village, into the tribe, into the community, they tell him, hey, young, young man, you're now a man. 
And so you've you got to behave like one. In fact, we're going to give you certain things to do as a man now that you couldn't do as a boy. They give him actual things to do now, right? So that young boy at 11, 12, 13 goes out, encounters all kinds of crazy things in the wild places, comes back, and now he's a man. And he's to behave like one. Well, if you look around, it doesn't take long to figure out that we don't have that in our culture, right? I mean, what, what makes a man a man in our culture? I, I don't know that you can get a driver's license. Maybe you can vote or, you know, go to war, certainly, or buy a beer. I don't know. These are like sort of indicators of what it means to be a man in our culture, and none of them are very good. And none of them are very meaningful. And so what we have in our culture is a lot of young boys that are actually, they're like young men acting like young boys, and no one has told them, hey, you're a young man. Act like a young man. In fact, here's how to do it, and we've got some things for you to do as a young man. Right? Nobody does that in our culture. And I'm sure it's the same with women too. Right? But my, I'm a man, so it's sort of my experience. So I go to this men's rite of passage, and they teach us all these things. Right? But it wasn't like a lecture. We weren't in a classroom. Now you're out in the wild, and it's this incredible ritual-based thing. And so one day in particular, they took us out into, the, into, the, into nature, and they let us go for the entire day. And I said, all you need to do is go find a place and like draw a circle, like a 10-foot, square-foot circle, and stay there where there's nobody else around you, and stay there for the entire day. And you cannot leave the circle. Now, I'm kind of a social guy, so I'm like, <gasps> all day alone by myself. Uh, but they said, look, you can, you can get wild, get crazy. You can take your clothes off. You can do whatever you want to do and just sort of become one with nature. I was like, all right, that sounds all right. That sounds kind of fun. And so, uh, and then they gave us these envelopes that they wanted to, to, us to open every hour on the hour. There was, like, there was a few of these envelopes. And inside each envelope was a message that you had to learn as a man in order to, prog- uh, to progress or uh, process through life, to go through life, right? And so I sat down, and uh, it was a long day, long story short, and I opened these envelopes, and I learned three things. Important, life-changing, uh, mind-altering kinds of things. And I want to share them with you. Is that cool? All right, because I want to teach them to my kids. They're appropriate for young boys, for young girls, for middle-aged men, for middle-aged women, for older men, and for older women. These three things, I think, can really shape who we become as followers of Jesus. So I want to teach them to my kids. I'm trying to. I want to teach them to my community, my congregation out at Central in Elk River, Minnesota. And I want to teach them to anybody else who will listen, including you guys this morning. Sound good? Okay, who's ready? So three things I wish, thank you for that hand back there. I got one hand. <laughs> uh, I got three things that I think I want to teach you that I, that I wish my father had taught me. All right, number one, everybody say number one. Number one, life is hard. Uh, you thought this would be an encouraging message this morning, did you? It's not going to be encouraging. No, I'm kidding. Uh, life is hard. Life is not easy, right? Life is hard. I'll never forget, I was in the sixth grade and in my middle school, Sixth grade is when you began to go to the actual like middle school building, right? So we had this huge building. And the teachers were adamant that we were not to be late for any of our classes. And I was like super nervous because they kept pounding in our heads, don't be late. You'll have a tardy if you're late. It's a big deal if you're late. I'm like, okay, oh dear God, I can't be late, right? And so you had four minutes to go from one class to the next, which was totally fine. Except I had one class where I, uh, I had to literally go from one end of the building all the way to the other end of the building. I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do that? Right? And then one day I was actually in the middle of transitioning to the next class. 
And I was running a little bit late because my teacher had to talk to me. So I'm like, I've got three minutes to go now to my next class. And I was sweating hardcore. So I'm like, I gotta run. So I'm like, run. I'm like booking it down the hallways. And in my stress and anxiety, I took a wrong turn. Now I'm in the wrong hallway. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get in trouble. This is crowded. They're gonna kick me out of here. This is crazy, right? And I turned down the final hallway to go down the, that last little bit to get to my class. And I wasn't really paying attention. And I, and I was like, had my head down. And as I'm running, like sprinting, all of a sudden, just bam, I ran straight into something. And it laid me out. I was like, and I thought it was a wall. Because I'm like, what in the world? This thing did not move. I moved and like laid out on the ground, right? And I'm like, and I'm like opening my eyes, trying to chase the, you know, the stars out of my eyes. I'm like, what was that? And I look up, expecting to see a giant wall or a pole I didn't notice. And no, I didn't see any of that. I saw instead this giant, huge, eighth grade girl. <laughs> no joke, no joke. And she looks down at me and she goes, hey, welcome to middle school. <laughs> Just kidding, she didn't say that, but she should have. Right? But I'm like laying on the ground. I'm like, man, that girl must be a linebacker. She just drilled me. I'm like, what happened? And I knew in that moment, I knew, I'm like, man, middle school is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a journey, a, 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 like this adventure that's not going to be easy. And see, life is that way. Life is hard. It's not easy. Right? We think it's easy because there are so many things that we can do that are super easy that a hundred years ago would have been unthinkable, right? Like if you want to drive to Florida, you can go right now, get in your car. If you have enough gas money, you can drive to Florida. You can also drive to the southern tip of South America. You can just drive there because of the combustible engine. Right? What about jet travel? You can get on a plane and fly around the world super easily if you have the money. Right? And in fact, we're going to be living on Mars probably very, very soon. Within our lifetime, well, some of our lifetimes, we might be living on Mars. They want to colonize Mars. It's unbelievable. I have a friend whose brother works for Uber. Not, not that impressive, right? Except that he works in their flying car division. Like Uber is designing flying cars that we one day will be using very, very soon. So things that were unthinkable a hundred years ago, we can do with ease. So we think, oh, no problem. That means that life should be easy, right? But it's not. Life is not easy. Life is hard. And the problem in the church is that most of us promote church as some kind of club where everyone can gather together and be together as one, and it makes life easier. Like Christianity, like, hey, come join our club, and it'll make your life way better. Make your life easy, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, you'll be wise, and in fact, one day you'll go to heaven, right? Like this is this glorious thing, right? I think Jesus even said those things. Didn't Jesus say that? That he'd make your life healthy, wealthy, and wise? And he was floating along the beach like this with his blonde hair flowing in the wind. <laughs> no, he never said that. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That somehow in following Christ, you will die. And in the church, we've got it flipped around. This prosperity gospel, this you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise, is a lie. That's not the way it goes. In fact, I would argue if you're a Christian, your life will be harder. Because there's this inevitable taking up your cross and following me. There's a death to this whole thing, right? Because life is hard. The question then becomes this. Not, is there going to be struggle in my life? The question is, how will we respond to struggle? You're going to have struggle. I guarantee you, it's part of life. Life is hard. 
and you're going to endure some hardships. What will you do in response to that? So my oldest son, Logan, plays baseball. He loves baseball. He's 14. He'll be a freshman this upcoming fall. And this summer was the first summer I didn't coach him as a head coach, right? And this summer, for not just that reason, but all kinds of reasons, was a very, very difficult summer for him baseball-wise. Now, I know it's just baseball, okay? It's not like it's the end of the world kind of a deal. But baseball or sport or other things are kind of a microcosm for life, right? And he had a tough year. He had a coach that wasn't his favorite, didn't play him where he always wanted to play. Uh, he, uh, our team was not very good. We got beat up a lot in a lot of these games. It was a tough, tough year. And also, I couldn't be there on the bench with him. And so uh, one day, I thought, you know what? I'm going to, as his father, I, like, I need to encourage him. All right? I need to let him know that, hey, buddy, I know it's going to be a struggle, but I'm going to encourage you. So I sent him a text message. And this is what it said. So I thought, I thought long and hard before I sent him, like, what could I write to him to encourage his soul, right? To make him feel better. To, like, reach into his heart and, like, grab his heart, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to be a good father here. So I wrote this. I said, Logan, your daddy, that's me, loves you very much. Tonight, he had a game that night, play fearless. Don't hold back. Win or lose, show up. Play hard. Stand your ground. Face your fears. Face the dragon, which I'll get to in a minute. And fight. Fight hard, young man. I love you, and I'll be cheering for you. Go get him. Pretty good, right? I'm like, I, I, you know, I, I, I reviewed it. I edited it. I made the right change. I'm like, yeah, this is gold. Send. I'm like, yeah. All right. And I expected him to write back, Daddy, you're the best. Through my tears, I'm writing this message. You're like, I love you so much. I'm going to go and play. I'm going to be an animal tonight because of you, Dad. But instead, I get this. Okay. <laughs> what? Uh, uh, hey, pal, go back and read that again because obviously you read it too fast. I don't know what you missed there, buddy. Oh, man, I'm like father of the year, I guess. I, what a waste of my time. But if you, if you know my son, you know that's how he is. I had a buddy of mine who was like, yeah, you're kind of the wordsmith, Ryan, and Logan's just not. Doesn't mean he doesn't feel it, and that might be you. Doesn't mean you don't feel things, but he's just not going to write a long text message back. So I call him. I go, hey, man, uh, how'd that, what'd that text mean to you? You know, is it good? You know? Yeah, it was good. It was good. <laughs> anyway, life is hard. I wanted Logan to know him. Hey, man, I can't go up there and swing the bat for you this season. I know it's been hard. It's been a hard season. I can't go grab the bat and swing it for you. I cannot play second base for you. In fact, I can't sit in the dugout with you. I can't do it. You have to do it. You have to face all of these things on your own, in fact. I cannot do it for you. But I promise you, on this side of the fence, I will be cheering for you, right? I'll be praying for you. When you get done with the game, we can go have a smoothie or a burrito or whatever. But I cannot do it for you. Life is hard, young man, and you have to face it. How will we approach struggle? I wanted him to know that you have to approach struggle head on. Because struggle is how we grow, right? This is how we grow in anything in life. If you want bigger muscles, awesome. You got to lift heavy weights. And that's struggle. That's pain. Are you actually tearing the muscles in order to grow them? All right? If you want to get smarter, awesome. You got to read hard books though. You got to take hard classes. You cannot keep reading the same old things or learning the same old things to get better at something, to get smarter. You have to do new things. You want to learn a new skill? Awesome. Great. You have to go and put in practice and hours of failing and hours of strenuous practice. And it's hard and it's discouraging and it's struggle. But that, my friends, is how you grow. It's how you grow anything. 
And I wanted my son to know that. That that, my son, is how you will grow. So Carl Jung, this famous psychologist, once, well, he used to quote this famous alchemist phrase. It's actually in Latin, so forgive my Latin. But he would always say, let's see, what is it? Instraquilinus inventator. Right? Anyone know what this means? I didn't either. It actually means in the gold. Or, I'm sorry, in the filth, it will be found. You see, Carl Jung used to think that in the, in the filth, it will be found. In the struggle, in the hardships, in the dirt, and in the muck, and in the mire of life, there is gold in there. And if you look closely enough, in the hardships of life, you will find gold. You'll find value in the struggle, right? He, he used to say even to this, that what you need most in life is where you least want to look for it. What you need most in life is where you least want to look for it. You see, life is full of dragons, right? And dragons are these ancient mythical creatures that live forever. They're awful, they're scary, they're terrifying. But dragons hoard, what do they hoard? Gold. Dragons hoard gold. If you want to get gold, you have to face the dragon, right? The gold is not in front of the dragon, The gold isn't on the other side of the dragon. The dragon is usually sitting right on top of the gold. And if you want the gold, if you want what's valuable in life, you have to face the dragon. And dragons, by the way, usually represent all that we're afraid of, all that we don't want to acknowledge, right? There are dragons in our lives, and hidden within the dragon is everything that we need. So if you run from the dragon, if you run from struggle— That's fine, but you're actually running away from everything that you need in your life. But if you face the dragon, and if you head into the dragon, you can get the gold and make a life out of it. Because embedded in everything that you are afraid of usually is everything you need to make a life out of it. You see, life is hard. Life is struggle. Life is all these things. And how we approach struggle is up to us. What about this? What about pain and suffering? Because sometimes when you face the dragons, you get bit, right? Or you get cut. Well, what about pain and suffering? How do we respond? What is our response to pain and suffering? Well, generally it's a few things. Either one, we ignore it. We block pain. We stuff it way down deep. But even though we do that, it lives down in there, in the fertile soil of our souls, and it will grow and grow and grow. And you never really get rid of it. Or another option is just to let it lay you flat. I know plenty of folks who have just been laid flat by pain and suffering. And they just do not want to go on. And I get it, right? But what is our response to pain and suffering? What if instead of stuffing it or ignoring it or letting it lay us flat, what if we face it and we search for it or search in it for meaning And for substance, what is this thing trying to teach us? What is it trying to show us, right? What is the meaning? How do we make sense of all of this pain and suffering? What if instead of all those other ways of handling our pain and suffering, what if we face it and try to make meaning out of our pain and our suffering? What can it teach us? Because you see, in our wounds are our greatest gifts. Go ahead for me, Jim. Richard Rohr says this. This is the guy who kind of came up with these men's rites of passage. And he says, By trying to handle all our suffering through willpower, which often we try to do, we try with our own willpower just to kind of muscle through it. And denial, medication, or even therapy, 
We have forgotten something that should be obvious. We don't handle suffering. Suffering handles us. In deep and mysterious ways that ironically become the very matrix of life. Suffering and sometimes awe has the power, the most power, to lead us into genuinely new experiences. Amen, right? Go ahead, one more for me, Jim. You see, our wounds become God's hiding place and God's greatest gift to ourselves. This is where grace lives. When you endure pain and suffering, it makes you softer, right? More tender usually. You become a better friend. You become a better pastor, a better teacher, a better doctor, a better mother, a better father, a better brother, a better, better sister. Suffering and pain usually soften our hard edges and becomes the place where grace lives and makes us better at all kinds of things in life, right? If you avoid doing this though, if you don't allow God to transform your pain, you will transmit it to others. Because we've all had this pain and suffering, right? Because life is hard. It's the way it goes. And if you don't allow God to transform it, you will transmit it through scapegoating and blame, through violence, and through resentment and bitterness. You will pass that on. The, the old saying goes, hurting people hurt people. And it's true. I've seen it happen all around me. If you don't allow God to transform your pain, you will transmit it. Romans 5 says this, we also glory in our sufferings. Wait a minute. I'm sorry, Paul. What? We glory in our sufferings? Paul must be crazy. But we, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope. And hope, my friends, does not put us to shame. See, life is hard. We know that. But how will you handle it? How will you approach struggle and pain and suffering? Life is all these things. What's your response to it? All right. How are we doing so far? Number two. Everyone say number two. Thank you for the 12 of you that said that. Life is not about you. Now, there's this, there's this, old, uh, this old child development psychologist named Jean Piaget. Here's his picture. One more for me, Jim. This is uh, from his dating profile site. So Jean, Jean Piaget studied infant development and childhood development, and he found that most infants are, uh, suffer from what we call egocentrism. Right now, infants, in case you haven't been around any of them, they tend to think that the only things that exist are what they can see with their eyes. So if you walk into a room with an infant and they see you, suddenly you exist. In their world, you exist now. But if you leave the room, you cease to exist. It's the weirdest thing because they're egocentric. It's actually how they survive. Right? But most of them, most of them will grow out of egocentrism. The problem is, I know some adults who still act this way. Right? I know plenty of grown-ups who still suffer from egocentrism and think the world somehow revolves around them. Right? This egocentric kind of behavior and, uh, and, and, and idea. Right? So the world becomes about me, 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 I, I, I. I. Jim Gaffigan calls him the me monster. You might have known some of these people. Right? I love the story in Job. Job, which is an incredible book, and we could preach like 10 sermon series on. But Job, long story short, goes through an immense amount of pain and suffering and torture almost. And his response is he's like really mad at God. Right? And there's this moment where he indicts God. He like, starts getting angry at God and shakes his fist at God. And just God goes after God. And God's response is beautiful. Check this out. God says, oh, hey, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me.
Tell me if you have understanding, Job. Who determined its measurements? Oh, surely, Job, you must know. Right? Who shut the sea in with the doors when it burst forth from the womb? Have you commanded the morning, Job? Did you do that? Did you wake up and do that, Job? Have you comprehended all the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this, Job. You see, Job sees the world through this little tiny little pinhole and has no idea what's going on. But God does. And God's response is like, hey, Job, settle down, man. Chill out. I got this. You be Job. I'll be God. Right? Stay in your lane, young man. Let me handle this. Right? Don't take over my job. I'm God, not you. You see, Job sort of operates as though he's the center of the universe. And God's like, you are not the center of the universe. I am. And Job, I got this. I'll handle this. You see, our egos are out of control. And the ego must be tamed. It's got to be tamed. Right? Because it's absolutely out of control. So Rick Warren wrote a book a couple of years ago, actually a lot of years ago now, called The Purpose Driven Life. Now, as a work of literature, it's like not that great of a book, right, if you read it. It's not that impressive. But somehow this book, at the time, sold more copies than any other book around except for the Bible and the sayings of Mao Zedong. Like one of the top five best-selling books of all time. How? It like is not that great of a book. Because the opening line, you know what it is? Life is not about you. And so those of us who read that were like, and it resonated deep down somewhere. And it's like, oh, because we know that's the truth, but we want to live contrary to that. And it sold like millions of copies, this book. You see, we're a part of a much larger story. Even though we operate as though we're not, we are. We're part of this much greater and much grander, much larger story. I love telling husbands and wives this. And parents of this, right? Because most of the time we live so egocentric, we think life's about us. And when you get married, life is not about you, right? And when you have kids, it's even less about you. So I said, grow up. If you think that life is about you and you're married, your marriage will entropy rather quickly. And if you have kids and think that life is still all about you, it'll ruin it. You'll ruin your kids and your own lives. See, life is not about you. We have to grow out of this idea that we are the center of our own universes because we are not. Life isn't about you, right? You're not in control. That's one way we remember that we're not, that we're not the center of our universe because we're not in control. There's all kinds of ways that life shows us that you're not the center of the universe. And one of those is that you, you really can't control much of what's going on in your life. Check out this quote by Richard Rohr. He says this, To be in control of one's own destiny, health, career or finances seems to be an unquestionable cultural value. We love to think that we're in control of everything, right? That we're the gods of our own universe. Now, on a practical level, it might be partially true, but not on the bigger level. Our bodies, our souls, and especially our failures teach us uh, as we get older that we're not, clearly we're not in control. You see, realizing that we're not in control situates us us properly in the universe. Now, I'm not saying that God controls everything meticulously and that we're just like puppets going through life, but there are many, many things in our lives that we cannot control. Here are a few of them. Growing older. You ever try to stop growing older? It's hard, isn't it? You can do yoga all day and eat avocados and go for runs, right? And buy the right face cream, but you're going to get older. It's hard. You can't stop it. What about having kids? Have some kids and try to think that you're still in control. It's impossible. Because your kids show you right away 
that you're not in control. I know plenty of good parents who have kind of crummy kids and plenty of crummy parents who actually have decent kids. Because it's, I don't, who knows how it works all the time. But it shows, you know what I'm talking about. It shows, it shows that you're not in control. About getting married. Try to marry someone and then try to control them. It doesn't work, does it? For most of us anyway. Losing your job. Failing health. Hardships. And even death. These things all remind us that you are not in control. That life is not about you. You are not the God of your own universe. Though you might try, you are not. And that somehow, the only way to have abundant life, to have meaning, is to like let go of all of this. You see, meaning paradoxically comes when you let go of trying to control everything yourself, right? And, and sort of submerging yourself into a larger story. And when you sort of put yourself into a larger story, that, my friends, is where you find meaning. And so letting go of control in many, many ways actually is what helps you bring, bring you into abundant life, right? So there are these reminders. But if you never learn that, if you never learn that you're not the center of the universe, right, if you never learn that you're not the God of your own life, then what you will do is you will sort of suck everybody into your own orbit, right? And you'll bring everything and everybody into yourself, like a black hole of like this, just this messy, like narcissistic, egocentric sort of way of being in the world. And you won't bless anybody except by accident. And you'll just become this sort of meaningless existence. But if you let go and sort of put yourself into, and give yourself to a larger story, that is when you can find life and freedom, letting go of control. Amen. Now, when I live as a, as a part of a much larger story, again, that's where I find what my life is really all about. And that is where I find meaning. Galatians 2.20 says this, because Paul knew this. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You see, Paul's life by itself was very, very insignificant. And so is mine. Like, I'll be here for just a very short amount of time. I'm a blip on the radar screen. My life is not that important. I'm not that important. A hundred years from now, unless I cure cancer, most folks won't remember my name. And I realize that. So what is my life all about? What will give my life this short, sort of insignificant life, what will give it meaning? Only if I give it to something bigger and greater to myself. I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. All right, number three, the last one. Everyone say number three. Number three is this. You, my friends, are going to die. <laughs> it's true. I don't know if you knew that or not. I have, a, uh, I have two boys and two daughters. Actually, this is a little skull I bought down in Mexico, and I keep it on my desk, just sort of staring at me to remind myself that I'm going to die. My daughter, Scarlett, um, that sounds a little weird, I know, but my daughter Scarlett, she is seven years old, and she's kind of like become obsessed a little bit with death, and she's very afraid that my wife is going to die, and she mentions it on occasion. Well, one night, I came home, and she's like, hey, daddy, you know what? I'm like, what, Scarlett? She's like, you're going to die. Fair enough. But I was feeling very fatherly and like very sort of wise, I'm like, I'm going to teach her a lesson here. So without thinking too much about it, and I was probably a little tired that day. I go, you know what, Scarlett, you're absolutely right. But guess what, sweetheart? So are you. <laughs> and she looked at me with her big brown eyes and was like that. And my wife was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I, think I, I think the technical term is I, I, missed, I missed it there. Right? But it's true. 
See, I was reading some scientific studies, and scientists have shown, they've done studies, that, that out of the, all the people who have ever lived, 100% of them have died. It's crazy. Did you know that? Out of everybody who's ever lived before us, they've all died. It's crazy. And check this out. Scientists, are, they're just guessing, they're just conjecturing here, but they project that everybody who's currently alive, out of those people, 100% of us will also die. It's terrifying, isn't it? Did you know that? That you and I one day will die, which none of us want to talk about because we don't want to die, right? So Ernest Becker, a long time ago in the 70s, wrote a book called The, the Denial of Death. If you're in this room and you have a death anxiety and can read some kind of dense psychological work, this is a great book. So he writes this. Becker says, The heroic projects of men and women are mostly overcompensations for a paralyzing fear of death. Hit the pause button for a second. What he's saying is most of the things that we do in our lives, most of the, of the goals we're chasing, like the American dream, the great job, the new boat, the high salary, the, the fame, the fortune, all these things that we're chasing, he calls them hero projects. He says most of them are our own way of overcompensating for a fear of dying. That deep down we're all paralyzed by fear of death. And to overcome it, we just work hard at chasing some important or quasi-important thing then. I hate to burst your bubble. But he goes on and says this. Uh, because of a paralyzing fear of death and powerlessness and diminishment. Until men and women move into death and live knowing that we're going to die. And live the creative tension of being both limited and limitless. We will never find truth or power. He's saying, unless we confront death and know that human beings can write symphonies and poetry and fly to the moon and build flying cars, but also human beings can step off the curb and get smoked by a bus and be toast, that we're both fragile and also incredibly powerful. And until we live in that tension, we will never, ever be free. Because you and I, my friends, are in fact going to die and most of us want to avoid that. But the sad tragedy is that in avoiding death and in sort of ignoring the fact that we're going to die, we also avoid life. In avoiding death, we often avoid life. See, life is organic. And life, by definition, has an end. We are mortal beings. And because of that, our lives will one day come to an end. It's just the way that it is. So on my men's rite of passage, there was this one day where we were taught this. And we go into the tent, and they're playing this loud, like, ominous music. We had our shirts off. And this guy up front had this big, giant stick with, like, a little cotton ball at the end. And he dipped it into this blood. It was actually red stage paint. And one by one, we came up to him, and he slapped us on the chest with this red blood and put a cross on our chest and said, you are going to die. And then we had to walk out of the tent in silence, and this big storm was brewing over the mountains. It was crazy ominous. And we had to walk out in the wilderness and just reflect on the fact that we were going to die. That I'm not immortal. I will not live forever. One day my life will come to an end. And here's the thing about that. It sounds macabre. It sounds kind of demented. I get it. But once you acknowledge the fact that you're going to die, once you realize that you're not immortal, it can actually set you free. Because you see, without death, there cannot be resurrection. The only way to get to resurrection is to go through death. Jonah had to go into the belly of the whale for three days and three nights in order to be vomited up on a dry land. 
Jesus knew this. Look what Jesus says in John. Go ahead, Jim. There we go. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it can bear much fruit. Paul writes this in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is death and resurrection language. This is what baptism is. Baptism is a death and then a resurrection. Communion, the communion meal, it's us eating the body and blood of Christ in order that it might sustain us. It's death and resurrection life. I don't know if you guys do this at all, all, but in our church we do Ash Wednesday, where the Wednesday uh, before Lent, people come down to the front and we mark their head, their forehead with the cross of Christ in ashes. And we say, hey, uh, from dust you came, and guess what? To dust you shall return. You are going to die. But that's the only way for you to to find resurrection life. You're going to die. All of us in this room are going to die. Amen? All right, let's recap. I know you're feeling good and cozy and warm and fuzzy this morning. I know. Uh, I want to recap. Here are the three things. Are you ready? Okay, number one, life is hard, right? Just the way that it goes. Life is hard. It's difficult. It's struggle. There's pain and suffering and grief. How will you handle that? Because life is hard. It's unavoidable. And life is hard, but, and look me in the eyeballs when I say this, life is hard, but we have a God who's a father, the creator of the entire universe, who promises to never leave you, to never forsake you. And this God is not immune to hardships. This God knows exactly what things you're going through. He's not immune to pain and suffering. God experiences God forsaking us on the cross of Christ and makes meaning out of that. So life is hard, but God, I promise you, is with you. Amen? Number two, life is not about you. It's just not. You are not the center of the universe. You are not the center of your own life. You are not in control. You are not that important. But, but, but look at me in the eyeballs again. But you are the beloved sons and the beloved daughters of God. You have immense and immeasurable value. Right? That God looks at you, knows every hair on your head. He's intimately aware of all the things you're going through. You are not the God of your own life. You're not that important, but your life is incredibly important. You have potential beyond measure. So you're not that important. You're not in control. Life isn't about you, but you are the beloved son or daughter of God. Never forget that. And lastly, Maple Grove Covenant Church, you are going to die. You're going to die. So am I. But, and look me in the eyeballs again, but every second, every minute, and every day until you do, you will live. You will live. So, Maple Grove Covenant Church, in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, go and live. Amen.